Welcome to another episode of Canalis Inside Conversations, where we are talking about the biggest trends and news that are hitting the IT industry. Alistair and I both back from well-deserved vacations, but unfortunately that doesn't stop news from happening. So we're going to recount some of the things that have gone on in the past couple of weeks. Uh, we're still very much in earnings season, so let's start there. Dell announced its Q, fiscal Q2 quarter, revenue overall down 2.7%. Um, so still relatively maintaining good stability overall. Alistair, did you have a look at the Dell numbers? What did you see there? Yeah, I think I think you're right, Alex. I think this isn't actually a bad picture at all for Dell. Uh, I mean, it does reflect some differences in their different business units and so on. But the... The overall picture is one of customers continuing to invest, uh, perhaps more so than than was initially expected, given all the economic challenges and lockdowns and so on. And um, you know, Dell has obviously benefited from growth in notebooks, in particular. It's actually had a strong performance in its consumer uh, PC business. There's it's benefited from the demand for gaming PCs, for example, as well as commercial notebooks. So um, so that's been a, a positive for for Dell. And I guess uh, it's no surprise that it saw a hit to its infrastructure business. That was down about 5%, as of course, uh, we saw a lot of spending halted or at least delayed during, uh, during the second quarter. So perhaps not many surprises. There are some growth areas within that. Data protection is up, high-end storage was up. <clears throat> and I think the other interesting thing that we're increasingly tracking um, as as an organization is the and which vendors are increasingly breaking out as the kind of recurring revenue business the as a service businesses of course is the big theme that all the vendors are chasing all the infrastructure vendors are chasing in particular but also some of the software vendors or many of the software vendors and and there is a growing tendency to um, to to draw comparisons by the vendors themselves with for example, the cloud adoption, you know, the performance of AWS and and Microsoft and others, and and you know, we're going to talk, about, I think, about HPE, but they they do the same. So, you know, that recurring revenue business that they break out and they make a big play of for Dell was up uh, was up as well, um, about fifteen percent. So, you know, did they did make the point that they're seeing their customers look for new consumption models? Their financing, their financial services business was up as well because obviously that was helping to sort of unlock some of the um, the capex constraints by by um, helping customers buy um, or at least defer payments and things like that. Um, so so a mixed picture, and I guess the question is where we go from here, what it looks like for the future. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also fair to say that while Dell has always had flexible consumption offerings, some of its competitors have leaned into that business model, those offerings a lot more profoundly. And it does seem now that in the field, Dell is really starting to have more of those conversations, pushing that through its uh, channel ecosystem as well. And really, um, as you say, even at the in investor level, putting a lot more emphasis on that side of the of that side of the business. Yeah, and of course, you know there is absolutely that. It's about creating the right story for investors because everyone's obsessed with that. Um, that shift to as a service and consumption, as they, as I said before, draw comparisons with, with the public cloud providers. Um, I think I think there is a degree of um, truth in the fact that customers are looking 
you know, the having to look for alternatives. Um, Dell, as you say, is is slightly behind in its um, is it in its um, as a service consumption models, uh, but it is pushing that. Um, I mean, there's a wider question here about whether this is a long-term transition or whether it's just customers trying trying to get access um, to to infrastructure um, to maintain their business continuity, and and actually, you know, that's pure. You know, that's just a, a circumstance of the current economic situation rather than a long-term sort of fundamental shift in the way that customers want to buy. Um, but of course, it's that. That theme is is encouraging all the, as I said, all the infrastructure vendors. You know, Cisco's made that statement as well, um, to really try and double down on that on that consumption business, on that as a service business. Mm-hmm. Let's move on. So we've also got HP announced their results. Uh, overall revenue down two percent for the quarter. Uh, growth really driven by personal systems and notebooks specifically that continues to be on, on, on a tear as we've seen from really the entire PC landscape. Um, but the real downside for HP was printing, which was down 20% during the quarter. And of course, a big part of that decline or that cl- decline was really in the commercial printing space, which is clear offices are, people aren't in offices that kind of activity is um, is is halted, is on a decline, and it's a bit, you know, of a bit of a wait for what otherwise would have been a very strong quarter for HP. Yeah, and I mean, this is this is a story across the printing industry. I think, I mean, my view is this is going to this is going to fundamentally change the the print sector. We're seeing a lot of the other um, peers, competitors of HP in the space. Um, being hit really hard, and uh, I, I think that's probably going to lead to some some big changes in the landscape in the vendor landscape. Um, and obviously, you know, HP is trying to find new and alternative ways of rejuvenating that print business. You know, they make the point that there is, um, you know, there's there's still a demand for for printed um, uh, pages even in home offices. I know I personally. I spend a lot of time printing stuff at my home office. Um, so I think there are, you know, they're looking at alternative kind of managed service, instant ink type um, solutions for for um, remote workers, but that just doesn't make up for the kind of, uh, you know, massive demand that they, they're missing out on um, in office environments. And they'll be dependent on people coming back into the office to, to kind of start to get that printing business up and, uh, you know, up to the numbers it had before. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you have to wonder as well how you talk about changes in the landscape going forward and, you know, does HP forever remain the PC and print company or do they decide to spin off the the print side of the business? Um, I, I think it's fair to say that there's relatively fewer synergies now between the two businesses. They have different challenges in the market, different go-to-market motions, different partner ecosystems in many cases. And it does feel like something where, you know, there was clearly at one stage was interest in their print business from from competitor Xerox, um, or frankly, in in the, in the business overall. And would HP better be better served as a standalone PC company? Now, of course, it's historically it's like the margins of the supplies business, which has in in quarters past been the the, the bright spot of the uh, of the company. It's newer um, uh, 
area that it wants to grow in in terms of 3D printing is really found built on the foundation of that um, capability to basically to print um, in some capacity and all the IP they have in that side of the business. Um, but right now, HP is very much a PC company um, in the eyes of many and uh, could be better off as a PC company focus on PCs and the continued opportunity that's going to be in this space. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a rumor that, that has, has resurfaced and a, a speculation that's resurfaced over many occasions over the last few years. But I agree with you now. I mean, the case is far stronger for them to think about doing that. Um, you know, particularly as it, if it continues to be a massive drain on the business and, and on profitability, you know, the, you know, that that sort of cash cow that they relied on is is far less uh, dependable. And, you know, their PC business has, has done has done well on the commercial side, uh, on, on notebooks, of course, not desktops. That's the other big challenge for HP, as it, as it has been for Dell uh, and, and Lenovo. The de desktop side is, is down a lot. So, um, yeah. I, it will be interesting to see whether that actually um, uh, becomes a reality that um, that HP, as a result, seeks to split split the business. Mm -hmm. It's not okay, that so long ago since Xerox was trying to buy HP, and that seems like a very distant, <laughs> uh, you know, distant past. Yeah, I'm still. I'm sure they've still got their number if, uh, if they change their mind. Um, let's move on to uh, HPE now, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Uh, so. Um, they also reported their results, revenue down 5.6% during the quarter. Also, this now makes it seven quarters in a row where they've recorded annual revenue declines. Um, is this a business that is struggling or do you see some positive signs here? I I, I mean, it's, it's not a great picture when you see those kind of declines and I think you know the, the the leadership recognize there are some some you know some challenges that they face as an organization but i think you know there has been i think if you take last quarter that the you know there was a, a, a i think the big story was actually the recovery in the supply chain and and the the decline that we saw in the first quarter was was really a, a result of um supply chain challenges and those supply chain issues have eased in the second quarter, and that's kind of helped to um, to unblock some of the demand that was there. And um, you know, the, they have there are some areas of, of growth for, even in their traditional, you know, their legacy business, their their compute business, and and obviously in their um, in some of their um, sort of VDI type solutions. Um, so I, I don't think it's uh, by any means a um, a, a you know a really negative picture. I think they you know the the results were were kind of um, were were generally seen taken as a positive by the investor community. Um, and uh, yeah, I I think um, there you know clearly HPE is facing the same kind of challenges that uh, that its peers are facing at the moment. Um, but I I generally feel that um, perhaps it, the situation is less severe for HPE and, and we, you know, as we talked about with Dell, um, than perhaps um, it might have been given the sort of the economic situation and, and the impact of lockdowns. And, um, you know, as I said, there were some there were some pretty bright spots within HPE's business. You know, they do have a, 
they do have a set of offerings which solve some some important customer problems. You mm. know, their their HCI business was up, um, and uh, as I mentioned, their um, their VDI. You know, there was a lot of demand for VDI, which then drove a lot of um, compute demand. Um, interestingly, it, when we contrast HPE with Dell, um, you know, Dell called out an improvement in its SMB sector, um, whereas HPE um, talked about that being a you know particularly hard hit, as we've heard from other vendors. Mm. So there are there are some some sort of contrasting numbers there, um, and and of course going back to the the point I made earlier, you know, HPE is making a big a big play or pushing the message about its GreenLake um, solutions, its GreenLake services, and it's brought out a whole range of services of new services that it calls Pub, uh, GreenLake Cloud. Mm-hmm. You know, which obviously are designed to appeal to those customers who perhaps don't necessarily want to go down the full public cloud route, but want to go for the sort of cloud-like economics. And they made it a lot easier for partners to partners in particular, because obviously partners are critical um, to take these to their customers. But it's still a, a you know, and they made, I mean, they made a they made a big play about the growth of GreenLake. Um, I think they were talking about eighty-two percent growth for. Um, uh, for GreenLake um, and how that's outperforming the, the the public cloud sector, which is slightly disingenuous because it's obviously a much smaller business, um, so it's easier to get those kind of growth numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and again, is this just a short-term situation, or is this does this really reflect um, that the the shift that HP wants to go through in its in its portfolio to a, to an as a serv- you know fully as a service model within the next couple of years? Yeah. Well, I mean, if I wanted to give HPE the benefit of the doubt, I think it was, what, two years ago or or even last year, where they really made a big claim and statement about how they wanted um, their entire portfolio to be offered as a service. And so they would be working through that transition. And if you compare it to companies in the past, such as Adobe, that went from license to subscription, the first part of that journey resulted in severe revenue declines, just Due to the uh, the economic side of things, where you have the 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 cost or the revenue of um, of your business coming in over the course of a longer time, rather than through one-time transactional hits. So again, giving HPE the benefit of the doubt, they might be painting somewhat of that picture with the performance of the GreenLake business growing uh, going up and the overall revenue going down. Um, I might. We might be being a little generous. I'm not sure if that is the exact equation that's happening. Um, but again, there are some positive signs there to show that there's their recurring revenue, their annualized revenue side of their business is growing amidst uh, a decline in their top line. So I think whether or not that growth can continue to outpace decline um, is the picture that we'll have to really um, keep an eye on. And, and the way I look at it is that it, it is the right strategy because – you cannot expect to maintain growth if you're not seeing every customer's different requirements and you know allowing them to buy they want the way they want to buy and although the majority of their business is still sold on a sort of more um, traditional capex basis you know there are a growing proportion of customers and that's been accelerated by the current crisis that want to look that want to buy in an alternative way and obviously that are being influenced by the sort of cloud economics of AWS and, and others. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so if HPE wasn't doing this, you know, we'd be attacking them for not 
meeting those customer needs. So mm-hmm. I think it's still a small part of their overall portfolio. Um, I mean, I think their total recurring revenue is is less than 8%, and GreenLake is a proportion of that. So, you know, it's a, it's a, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a growing business, but it's a small portion of the business. And I think the, the point is that every vendor has to offer a full spectrum of, of choice from sort of full IT as a service consumption based through to sort of finance, financed um, and leasing type offers all the way to, you know, um, more uh, sort of traditional um, upfront purchasing. And, and that's what HPE is doing. And obviously they're pushing the message because, again, they want to appeal to investors and show that they're transitioning. And they're also under extreme pressure from from the public cloud providers who are winning business from them, who are taking um, customers. And, and you know, HPE needs to have an answer to that. It needs to go be able to tell customers or give them a you know, a, a solution when the customer is saying, I want to move to public cloud. Mm-hmm. So that, that makes a huge uh, amount of sense for HPE to do that. Yeah. Uh, as, as we're seeing with Cisco and others, um, they need to bring their partners along with them on that journey. And that's something they're really seeking to do. Um, you know, we just seen uh, the, the HPE um, head of channels uh, uh, announced that he's been, or it was announced that he's moving to a new role in North America. So they're bringing in a new channel chief um, who, or they'll have to bring in a new channel chief who's taking over from Paul Hunter in that role. And I think one of his jobs will be to continue that momentum um, around GreenLake, around helping the partners to kind of make this a much more simple um, volume kind of um, uh, sales motion rather than as they, they have in the past, made it incredibly complex. Every deal having to be customized for each customer, every pricing having to be customized. The partners hated it. Um, so they're trying to address that. But they also need somebody who's not just focused on that and who prote- who's still prepared to protect that core business, which is still so important to their, to their total business and to the partners. Mm-hmm. Let's double click on that point just for 30 more seconds. Uh, we've given HP a lot of airtime here, but um, Paul Hunter, as you just mentioned, did um, move roles to run their North America sales business. Um, not too dissimilar from the same move that uh, pre- Dell's previous, previous channel chief, uh, John Byrne, made, right, to leave global channel position to run what presumably is the largest sales region for the company. So, again, good testament to the the, the skills that a channel leader can bring to a sales organization. Um, in the interim, they have uh, George Hope to run the channel business, who previously was uh, running distribution for HPE, and then prior to that was the channel chief at SimpliVity. Um, but they're still in the search for who will take on that position full-time, whether it's George Hope or someone else in the organization. Um, Alistair, any any predictions here? I mean, George has been at HPE really since the acquisition of SimpliVity, but he's not a long-time HPE-er. Um, he's, uh, I think, made a couple of moves, uh, certainly in the EMEA region regarding distribution, which were seen as relatively unpopular in terms of uh, um, some contracts being canceled, and and um, so I think we've you know documented that in the past. Um, HPE has a number of executives who have been part of the channel organization for a very long time. But what do you think they need for a channel leader going forward? Just very quickly. Well, I mean, I've always been of the opinion that a, a successful global channel leader has to have two primary capabilities. They have to have a, an absolutely um, 
in, inherent understanding of uh, the partner's business models and requirements and to be able to act as an evangelist for partners into into the organization um, to protect uh, you know the the the, the, the needs and requirements of, of partners and to help to drive their mess their, their um, you know that message to the um, to the leadership um, as well as being somebody uh, who is who is uh, you know personable person who who people um, are are able to um, associate with and and feel that it, it is on their wavelength so you know somebody who has a lot of charisma and a lot of um, you know, they're fronting that organization of, you know, however many tens of thousands of partners um, and those personal relationships are very important. So they need some, it's a difficult balance to find somebody who has that as well as somebody who's able to kind of, as I said, set that balance between the sort of the new business models and, and the, the sort of existing business models. Um, mm-hmm. There aren't many people that actually have those kind of skills. Paul did a great job, actually. He was a, a really successful leader and it's great to see a Brit in that role. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. I'd say that, but um, no bias there, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and and now, obviously, he's yeah, as you said, he's moved to North America. And um, I, I guess I mean they, they're you know they they will probably they will prob- I, I imagine that that they might actually uh, you know try and look internally rather at first rather than going externally. But uh, yeah, we'll wait to see what happens there. Okay. Let's move swiftly on. Salesforce also announced, I don't think we need to spend much time here, but again, very strong Q2 revenue up 29% year on year. They raised their guidance for their full year to um, to 21 to 22% growth. Their stock is up 120% since the pandemic dip. And I think this goes to show that Salesforce's momentum, the as-a-service model, um, it's sticking, it's working, at least in, in this instance. Um, and they continue to fly through um, you know, blowing out expectations and performing well. Um, yeah, absolutely. So other earnings that we should touch on, Nutanix uh, had their f- uh, fiscal or their fiscal Q4, their full, um, so their quarter up 9%, their full year up 6%. So a good high to end on. And I think also the big news coming out of Nutanix is that their CEO, co-founder, Dhiraj Pandey is to retire. Um, Alistair, is this a blow for Nutanix? What, what do you think um, they need going forward? I mean, he's been a very public face for the organization. He has, uh, he's very well respected in the industry and, of course, has done a fantastic job with Nutanix, which has, uh, it has really um, almost you know, effectively defined that, that segment, obviously now competing very, very closely against um, VMware, which going back to Dell's results was a bright spot in their in their numbers of CHPE as well in parts. Um, I mean, he, the interesting thing about Nutanix is that it's maintained a very um, startup-like culture internally. Um, and I think partners and customers really like that. They value the that that sort of um, that relationship they have with the company as well. It's kind of, it's got a sort of nimble, um, fast moving um, culture and mentality, which kind of can set it apart from some of the the big corporate um, giants who, who, are, who sometimes see or feel a lot more conservative or slow moving compared to that that culture. Um, but I guess the balance they have to strike is as they move to the next era of the business and they're expanding into a whole range of different things, they have to move beyond the dependence on their core um, HCI sort of portfolio. 
is they they kind of need to someone who is able to to lead the company as a you know a, while retaining that sort of that legacy also ensure it's a kind of um it has that corporate um strength and muscle which are, which gives customers the reassurance that you know they can invest with Nutanix rather than you know VX Rail or a or 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 a similar bigger company i mean the problem with Nutanix is it's still loss making uh, you know, it's still it's still a company that needs to turn profit, and um, and uh, there's always rumours about it an acquisition target at the moment. It stocks up, so it's um, you know that's unlikely to happen. But um, uh, you know that rumour always kind of resurfaces. I think Zeraj will be a hard act to follow, um, but uh, yeah, and I need to sort of carefully find the right the right caliber of person to take on that new role, which probably looks slightly different to to, to what Zeraj brought. Yeah. And I, I really think, you know, his two or two of his greatest character uh, characteristic traits, which I appreciated, was that, um, A, he was very channel centric, very visible um, with a partner community, very engaged. And so, you know, when you have that from the top down, that really gives partner the partner community a lot of real confidence that you have the backing from the vendor and you could really trust them as a, as a partner, um, as, as a supplier. So, um, I think that was fantastic. But then also just the degree into which he took the fight to VMware, being very public about it. Um, I think that's exactly the kind of spirit you need from an underdog uh, CEO. And, you know, hopefully that is the piece I think that they need to retain um, when they look at their new appointment. And, you know, conventionally at the moment, we've talked about in the past, I've I've always aired for uh, – I guess, tech background CEOs in this day and age, given the complexity of the technology landscape and having someone that deeply understands the technology, I think is critically important. But in the case of Nutanix, I almost think they need more of a salesman, someone who can kind of really um, continue to be very, um, uh, very outward publicly facing, very loud in the market, and someone who could really drum up a lot of demand and uh, uh, and appetite for their products. So um, we'll have to see who uh, who they who they wait to uh, who they wait to appoint. Yeah. Um, yeah. So some other uh, earnings to quickly tap off. CrowdStrike is another um, darling of the cybersecurity industry. Revenue of eighty four percent in their latest. Uh, um, um, earnings, um, you know, we've seen them climb to second in the endpoint uh, security market, and they really continue to gain market share. You know, only trailing McAfee now, and by their current momentum, you know, really could be um, overtaking McAfee in probably three or four quarters. Um, and so that would be an amazing feat for a company that has really skyrocketed, um, you know, in the past two years, really to to come to almost dominate the market. So. Um, an example of a company that has really brought in a very different approach to cybersecurity in terms of being a natively cloud-based. And I'm sure we'll cover a lot more of that in some of our security research going forward. Um, but then we also have Zoom. And Zoom is the company that for me really, uh, and I'm trying to say this as positively as possible, highlights the current era, the pandemic era that we're living in right now. I think no company has really exemplified it more it's almost become lexicon in many, um, you know, vocabulary where we use it as kind of a was an adjective to describe 
um, meetings or video meetings. Um, they've really democratized video meetings, everyone from gym instructors through to boardrooms of large corporates. And listen to some of these numbers, Alistair. Their revenue in their latest quarter was up 355% year on year. And we're not talking small numbers either. That's going to 663 million for the quarter. Their stock is up over 500% year to date. Um, there might have been a bit of a dip as we're recording this, but nevertheless, I, I think they've just been quite an unbelievable story in uh, in 2020. Yeah, I think Zoom is probably uh, as surprised as everyone else was about the, the level of success they've had this year. Uh, we're, of course, doing this, recording this on Teams, interestingly, <laughs> but uh, we spend a lot of time on Zoom as well. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just you know as you said it's uh, revolutionized the way that um that people have been able to interact and, and communicate not just in a business setting but also in a personal setting and um i think that we we can expect um to see zoom remaining a significant force i don't think that we are even though as we go back you know as we saw, see more for a return to office i think there are so many organizations that have that have made a commitment to um, to a hybrid model and we've sort of talked about that in our research i.e employees working from home and in um in in the office environment and even some saying that they're going to stay fully um fully remote some of the very big organizations so having made those moves having set you know hundreds of thousands of employees up in many large enterprises cases you know those tools are are critical to um to the um, to the ability to support that and and Zoom has had to kind of step up and become more secure and corporate kind of corporate facing or corporate supporting in its in its approach. Um, but yes, as you say, it's a it's a name that we're gonna we're gonna be living with for some time. I think. Yeah, and we briefly mentioned some sort of the competitors. Uh, you know, Microsoft obviously with Teams has also done well during this. Um, you know, with the Teams adoption. But again, a very different approach in terms of really looking for that more bundled approach where it becomes part of that Office 365 uh, package and um, you know trying to elevate the higher levels, the E5 subscriptions to those uh, services. Um, so much more of a solution-oriented approach. Cisco, of course, you know, trying to revitalize its WebEx platform. It's it continues to make acquisitions. Its latest one, it bought Babel Labs. Um, again, a small tech startup to with a bit of a niche technology to try and help improve the, I think, the, the sound quality using AI of video conferencing meetings. So again, Cisco, I think, always focusing very much on the quality and the experience. Um, but Zoom is really where it's winning is just kind of that ease of deployment and um, having almost that kind of consumer freemium model. I think most of its or a significant portion of its revenue comes from users swiping their credit cards. And so, it's a go-to-market model that's really allowed it to really kind of gain a lot of traction, especially in the S of that SMB world. Um, yeah, and we're actually interesting. We're seeing Zoom now starting to engage with with distribution, for example, with uh, channel partners because I think they mm -hmm. they recognise that you know they need to maintain this momentum. They need to have a set of partners out there that are actually um, implementing it and and you know deploying it for and providing services to customers. Um, because that's what customers want, especially as they sort of formalize those and put more process behind that work from home model, which you know many organizations didn't have when they first did it. And that's where we see this sort of next wave of growth and the next wave of opportunity for for partners and for the industry around the work from home 
uh, model is is really putting some structure and 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 giving companies a, a sort of an architected um, you know hybrid model for the future so that they can keep doing this successfully. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned distribution here, and that should take us to our last point for the call. Um, uh, so a couple of uh, news items here. Well, first, Ingram Micro reported its uh, Q2 uh, revenue and saw a decline of 9%, which is surprising given how strong the PC markets are performing. You know, you really would have thought that would have given it some incredible um, tailwinds to also benefit from that opportunity. So um, profitability was up. So that kind of suggests perhaps a shift to higher value business. Um but nevertheless, revenue declined. Um, but then also during the quarter, or, or sorry, not during the quarter, but recently, Tech Data announced it's going to um, acquire Innovix, which is a uh, an Asian distributor based out of I think Hong Kong or Singapore. And you know, to me, this move is really about geographic expansion in the region, right? Innovix, its biggest markets are Hong Kong, Malaysia, Singapore. Um, those are markets where tech data has some presence, but is not as strong. You know, it's very much um, its base there is the ANZ region. So again, I think this is about tech data becoming more of a global powerhouse, really becoming a, a one of the only two distributors. The other one being Ingram Micro, that is truly global in scale, and it's going toe to toe with Ingram Micro for that global dominance. Uh, any thoughts on uh, on Tech Data's acquisition here or on Ingram's results? Well, just very quickly on Ingram. Um, yes, they did see a decline. I, I, I wasn't that surprised, actually. It's been a fairly consistent theme for distribution uh, in, the, in the last couple of quarters because unless you're wholly focused on, you know, the devices and the PCs and so on to support remote working, then, um, you know, your other parts of your business are going to be affected. And I think that's what's happened with with Ingram, they, you know, their their infrastructure business was hit. There, um, you know, they, they, there are lots of uh, consumer business was hit. You know, they serve retail as well, and obviously retail was down. So I think uh, you know it's perhaps not surprising to see their revenues decline, and and also for their profits to be up because that's the other theme we've we've seen. You know, the, the channel and distribution in particular has benefited from um, higher margins, even on PCs. Um, and also lower costs, of course, that's been another theme in the channel. Um, and um, so so I think, uh, you know, that that's perhaps not that surprising. Interestingly, on Ingram, what they did call out, they talked about their growth in their, uh, or certainly their technology solutions, um, which effectively is they're talking about their PC and, and accessories business and so on. Um, and also their commerce and lifecycle services, you know, the delivery and, and fulfillment businesses contributing to their growth. What they didn't call out was their cloud business. Uh, now, I don't have any, any particular insights into this, except it was a notable omission in their press release. I think that they've seen a lot of traction in their cloud business. They've seen, a, you know, they've added a lot more seats that they're managing. But a lot of that business has actually um, been delivered on a free basis, you know, so, so um uh, through you know Microsoft and and Cisco and others making those available to, to customers, what they have to do now, what everyone in that cloud distribution space has to do, is actually find a way of monetizing those those seats. Now it's an opportunity, but it also um, you know requires some some work on behalf of the distributor. So I think you know that there is it's notable because we all talk about cloud, but actually has has cloud really contributed? That much to real revenue growth uh, through the, through this period, 
um, you know, the red distribution has a relatively small share of, say, you know, the AWS or Azure businesses, although it's growing, you know, where where that has been a strong growth uh, in in cloud. Um, so I think you know there's possibly a sign that they that they've missed, and I think other distributors have perhaps missed some of the true revenue growth in that space. And then very quickly on tech data, yes, um, you know they they've they've had a pretty small footprint in APAC. They moved into the region with the acquisition of Avnet TS Technology Solutions back in 2016, and they um, they they've really been you know they haven't really managed to t- turn that business around particularly well. Um, it's been loss making. It's made losses for I think um, I think possibly even since it was acquired. There were some integration challenges. So um, what this brings is, as you say, a much bigger, broader business, more in line with the rest of the tech data business globally. You know, spread across volume products, enterprise business, software, and security. Um, what it also says is that with tech data having just been acquired and fully, you know, the deal fully com- completed. By, by Apollo, the private equity company, it's given real evidence that Apollo is prepared to make large-scale, reasonably large-scale regional acquisitions to bolster Tech Data's overall business, and um, you know it's it, you know and and to actually look at expanding it rather than just focusing on cutting costs and the bottom line in the short term. Um, in a short, short-term motion, it would have been probably easier for them to just cut the total APAC business loose, um, reduce the group losses by doing that, um, or contribute more to group profitability. But instead, they've decided to make a pretty sizable acquisition, which will give them a much bigger footprint. So for me, it says Apollo is in this for the mid to long term, not just a short-term uh, return, or certainly they see more benefit and more value in giving distrib- uh, tech data that full global coverage than they do just making it a regional player in the US and 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 in um, and in EMEA. Yeah, very good points. Cool. So I think we should wrap up there, Alistair. Um, good conversation as always. A uh, lot lots covered there and look forward to speaking again on the next uh, Inside Conversations. Thanks, Alex.